Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, politics has always been a blood sport, but Annamie Paul's resignation yesterday was the result of her facing obstacles from her own party. How can we send a message to women interested in politics that this is not really the way it's supposed to be? Requiring proof of vaccination to get into places like a restaurant or a gym has become the new norm, but some facilities have been facing abuse. Well, the Toronto Board of Trade says they have a way to better the vaccine passport program. President and CEO Janda Silver will join us to explain. And Canada's Catholic bishops are apologizing for the church's role in the residential school system. What took them so long, by the way? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, well, the announcement yesterday, if you just look at it on the surface, the headline, uh, Green Party leader Annemie Paul is stepping down. But there's a lot more to this story. Uh, Annemie Paul fought the last election as Green Party leader, and uh, she's out, saying she doesn't have the fight in her anymore to try to keep her job. Global's Sean O'Shea has some details. At a public park near her home in Toronto, Annemie Paul strolled with her husband, then made the announcement. It is quite clear to me that I am not going to have the opportunity to lead. The embattled leader describing the party's push for a leadership review. I just don't have the, the heart for it. Describing how difficult it's been as Green Party leader the last few months. It has been the worst period in my life in many respects. Paul didn't win a seat after three tries in the riding of Toronto Centre, and she lacked the support of her own party, which tried to push her out before the campaign began. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that when you head into an election, being again under the threat of a court process from your party, it's going to be very hard to convince people to vote for your party. It's a, a, a tragic story, quite frankly, no matter what your poli- political affiliation is. Uh, Susan Delacourt, national columnist for the Toronto Star, writes about it. Enemy Paul was tormented out of politics. And uh, she also says, here's how Justin Trudeau could actually send a different message. Uh, Susan Delacourt joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Susan, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Nice to be back, Bill. Susan, we know like politics is a blood sport. We know that. You've written about it. I, we, some of us have even experienced it. But this was an exceptional case, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen uh, a political leader resign like this. And, you know, there, there are good and bad parts to this. You know, usually I, I've see, we've seen uh, past political leaders basically hounded out of their jobs. Stockwell Day comes to mind to me, you know, then in that sort of troubled era, or John Turner going farther back. And, you know, they, they do the... The usual thing is to do the stiff upper lip and say, for the good of my party and to heal these wounds, it's time for me to step down. Uh, Annemi Paul burned all the bridges back to the Green Party yesterday when she stood up. And and some will say um, that's evidence of why her leadership was troubled. She... uh, she put herself before the party. Her her uh, her statement was all about what she had gone through, not the party. Uh, and I've got lots of mail since I wrote yesterday about this. But there is the fact staring us in the face, as I also wrote, that, that this is an embarrassment. Um, that this is the first woman of color to lead a major Canadian political party. And um, it it ended in chaos and confusion and uh, recriminations, and somebody saying, uh, as you had in the clip there, that that leading a political party was the worst period of her life uh, tells you, it tells you a little bit about the Green Party. She didn't name names. She didn't, uh, she didn't sort of identify her tormentors, but it also tells you about what it's like 
behind the scenes of, of a political party generally. And we all know, as you alluded to there, it is a blood sport. It's just supposed to be a blood sport with your rivals, not within your own party. Well, and that's the, the undercurrent of the story here, isn't it really, Susan? It was their own party that did her in. I mean, we expect the, you know, the barbs, et cetera, from the car, across the aisle from the opposition parties, and that happens, and we've seen that happen on a pretty regular basis these days, probably more than ever uh, in the last couple yeah. of years. But from day one, she was a target from within her own party. Yeah, it does seem that something was not working there. Now, if you, if you talk to Elizabeth May, um, who isn't talking a whole lot these days, but I remember in the early days when Elizabeth May, after she took over in 2006, uh, she had a rough time with the party as well. That it is, it, it is not a party that functions, you know, we're going to do whatever the leader says. Uh, they are, are very uh, democratic to a fault, some would say, that uh, it's, uh, uh, no, no leader is just going to walk in there and change the culture of the Green Party. And that is going to um, is going to ruffle feathers. And I think, you know, you can just read between the lines of what was going on in there. I, I think it is far too simple to just call this, you know, that the Green Party couldn't handle uh, a woman of color or a woman of diversity. I think, you know, this is 2021, and I, I don't think that, that people are hounded out of office that way anymore. I may be naive. But I, so I think this is a complicated story, and I would caution anybody from thinking that this was, you know, the revenge of Elizabeth May, who doesn't want the job. Uh, she doesn't want it back. Uh, she, she, uh, it, it's not, it, it's more the party's culture and, uh, and a clash of culture inside there, I think. I think. I'm not, I'm not 100% certain. It's, it, it is, though, like the party just went on a suicide mission before this election and just decided, let's implode rather than fight an election, which should have been about climate, you know, their issue. Mm -hmm. What's, I, I guess if we're going to lay all our cards on the table, though, I, and you're, you're absolutely right about that characterization of the way the party responded to this, but, but what exacerbated, I guess, Susan, was the fact that, and, and it's an uncomfortable truth, but we need to, to talk about this, is any female in politics uh, is going to, probably run into some level of misogyny we've seen that we've had it's been well chronicled uh, we've talked about that in the past as as yeah. our black people people of color the same thing so this was this was the perfect storm to just you know first of all there's dissension within the party i don't know if the party even knows who they are or what they want to be and then this candidate comes along who uh uh, it's, they should have been celebrating the fact that you could check those boxes, a woman of color, a, a, a minority, and, and somebody who's outspoken, which I, I think you need. I mean, you know, somebody who's going to be the fourth party or fifth party, I guess, uh, is somebody who has to be able to grab headlines. Elizabeth, they tried to do that. Enemy Paul certainly uh, is not a shrinking violet. Uh, but that seemed to be a, 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 a vote against her because of this. In other words, they looked at all this stuff and said, instead of celebrating this and saying, we're actually representing what politics should be in the 21st century, century uh they, they they set the trap door for her oh i think that is very well said bill yeah i think that's that's absolutely true it's impossible to you know disentangle all these things and it is true that uh even in this day and age women uh women in, in positions of authority and and social media has exacerbated this um people of color you know um politics is supposed to deal with change but it deals with change very badly. It's, uh, it, it, it's uh, you know, it, it was funny to watch this during the election campaign. Um, 
we were supposed to be living through one of the most, you know, uh, remarkable, extraordinary, rare elections we've ever had. But it, it was really interesting to see how politics has a rhythm of its own and it grinds on and, and the system just works as it is. So uh, it's very hard to change a system in the culture of politics. And obviously that's what she was trying to do inside the Green Party. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm juxtaposing what happened in, in the, the stories that we heard. And by the way, they talked about the leadership review after the election. Of course, there was a talk of leadership review months before the election was even called. Uh, but her her performance in the, in the debate, the one debate in which she was allowed to take part in, uh, I thought would have enhanced her position, Susan, within the party, but it didn't seem to. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of shocked by that myself. I, I thought she won that debate. I thought she... Uh, uh, she was strong. It should have enhanced her. I was really struck yesterday. I think this was the detail that, that sort of leaped off the television to me was when she said that the day of the election, they sent her a note. They didn't send a note to her saying, good luck today. We're with you. Um, they sent her a note saying her leadership was under review. You know, what? In what universe was that a good idea? I have no idea. I imagine any other political party where the party would have said to the leader on the very day of the election, we're reviewing your leadership before the votes are even counted. But it just seemed as if the party executive were against her from the beginning. And and listen, I understand what, you know when there's an election of a party leader, it maybe doesn't go as well as some people want to do it. I mean, you know, Andrew Scheer was not the, the conservatives' first choice, but he ended up winning the thing. Uh, way back when, Dalton McGuinney uh, won the leadership. It was in the middle of the night. I forget how many ballots it finally was. But uh, if the fact is, is that was the process, and this is the leader, uh, but they didn't ever want to accept that. Yeah, and I, I don't know that there is there, there's a stalking horse in there. I don't know that this, again, this is the Green, particularly Green Party culture. I don't think somebody was gunning for her with an eye on her job. You know, that, no, that I don't think so either. Faction. I think this was just the Green Party saying, whoa, uh, this is not the way this party works, and we're going to tell you the way this party works. That's my understanding anyway, is... Uh, it, it's just a, a severe clash of styles. You know, there was the the other incident uh, my colleagues reported on this over the summer, um, where she was in the middle of um, she was in the middle of a discussion, a conference call with the the uh, National Council, and she was muted. And you know, what kind of symbol is that? You know that it, it, there, there seems to be a straight line between being muted. Now, people inside would tell you it was because she wouldn't let anybody else speak and the green party doesn't like that everybody gets a turn etc cetera, etc cetera. but um yeah muting the leader and then telling her leadership is under review the day of the election it all sounds like this was a party determined to teach a lesson to somebody I, I want to briefly, I've got a couple of minutes left here, but I want to talk about one of the other aspects of your, of your column the other day, Susan, and it's very interesting. Uh, what might happen going forward here? She's going to step down. Uh, she made the environment a key issue. Uh, Justin Trudeau uh, has, has characterized himself as, as the, the champion of the environment. We're going to do something magnificent about this. Uh, why not, as you may suggest, uh, reach out to Anime Paul and have her be part of that team? Not as a liberal, as you say, but this is not the first time that we've crossed the aisles and had bipartisan approaches to these sorts of things. Uh, 
and from a personal level, that might make sense, from a, an environmental issue, from a policy issue, but even from, from a political level. Uh, you know, Trudeau's yeah. image as, as a feminist has been tainted because of Jody Wilson-Raybould and a few other things that have gone on, uh, even the way that he went after her when she accused him of not being a feminist during the debate. Uh, this seems to be not just a time to reach out with an olive branch, but to reach out and say, listen, we want, we want to tap into your passion for this. I, I So... I, to me, this is a, a note of grace that he could do, and we are desperately in need of some notes of grace after that election. Uh, I think if he is, uh, he's going to take a delegation of some kind to Glasgow to at the end of October to the Climate Change Conference, which is his passion now, we're told. he had, In 2015, he took premiers of all different stripes. He took the opposition parties. He went with everybody. And I think he's in a minority parliament. He knows that the country is desperately in need of some unity. And to enemy Paul, this would be a, a gesture of we recognize in a way that your party does not uh, your contribution to public life. And why don't you come with us to Glasgow? I, I think it's a no-brainer, but um, the reaction I've had so far indicates that, uh, you know, uh, Deep red liberals don't like the fact that she attacked the prime minister and don't believe she deserves a reward. But um, I, I would, uh, I think it's a chance for the prime minister to show that that he is trying to set a new tone in parliament, in politics. And actually, for those people who contacted you and characterized this as a reward, they don't get it. Uh, it's not a reward. No. <laughs> it's 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 a calculation, and it's a, it's a, it's a, a, I, I, if he does this, it would be an attempt to say, look, if this is a bipartisan issue, this is this is not a liberal issue or a conservative issue, etc. You know, the election's over, guys. Get over it. Stop with the talking points, and let's look forward about what we can do. And she's an advocate. She was an advocate long before she was the leader of the Green Party. She's been an outspoken voice on this. Uh, you know, if he's going to sit down and meet with Greta. Thornburg, you can at least sit down with Annamie Paul, too. That's my view. That's, uh, that, I think that would be, uh, this is a human issue. And, and what happened to Annamie Paul was a very human thing. And I think, um, it's funny you brought up the debate. I can't tell you how much mail I've received about that debate thing. Because she attacked him on Jody Wilson-Raybould, she should not, uh, she can't be trusted, uh, people are saying. And, and I think they don't get it. It's, uh, it's, the Prime Minister has an opportunity here to to do something different, and I think we're all in need of something a bit different right now. Well, i got to tell you, some of the feedback I've received over the last couple of years on SNC-Lavalin, on, certainly with Jody Wilson-Raybould, which is an associated issue and others, is uh, I think an awful lot of Canadians are looking for a little humility from this Prime Minister, too, and uh, this might be an mm -hmm. opportunity for him to display that. Yep, yep. yep. Anyway... Susan, as always, thought-provoking piece uh, in the star. Thank you so much for writing it, and thanks so much for spending some time with it. I always appreciate your time. Thanks for reading it, Bill. Take care. Susan Delacour, National Columnist with the Toronto Star. It's still online, by the way, in the Star Online, uh, if you want to go and check it out. It's an uh, interesting piece and got some interesting ideas about what should happen going forward. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I spent some time talking about uh, proof of vaccination because it's become a very contentious issue. 
uh, right across the province since uh, the uh, provincial government announced their policy, uh, kind of a two-step policy, really, which is, I think is really complicating things. But uh, flashing proof of vaccination to go into restaurants or gyms has uh, become almost the norm in many provinces because many provinces were jumping on this before Ontario did. And while most Canadians are pretty happy to oblige, there's still a small but very vocal percentage that are making a fuss, and they're taking their frustrations out on the businesses, and that's that's problematic. Uh, the businesses have been told to implement the vaccine passport programs and to enforce them, too. And that seems to be one of the very contentious points. Global's Jamie Morocker has some details. Bill Mafuz and his staff just want to be safe while serving up sandwiches. But during the first week enforcing Ontario's proof of vaccination program, he's already faced violence. And he threatened to come back and fill up his truck with bricks and destroy the place. The anger, he says, has come in person, online, and over the phone. It's just really unfair to take out frustrations on these young adults, you know, trying to work. Vaccine passports are a reality in most provinces and already required in BC, Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec. It does place, you know, extra pressure on small business that are already feeling a lot of pressure. Without intervention, experts say businesses will continue to bear the brunt of the bad behavior. These are government policies, and if people are unhappy, they should be raising that with their elected politicians valid point so how do we handle this i mean it's uh, it's the policy it's the law it's uh, it's what we need to be doing yet a lot of small business people are, are very apprehensive about it some are pushing back uh what they need here is a little bit of help and some clarity and uh well the toronto region board of trade i think has uh, got a solution here that uh, maybe we should be talking about and adopting uh jan de silva is the president and ceo of the toronto region board of trade join us on the bill kelly show to talk about this uh, jan welcome to the program good to have you with us today Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. What are you hearing from your members about the policy? Look, uh, with the policy, we've been calling for it on behalf of our members. Uh, the biggest thing that we're hearing from businesses of all shapes and sizes is they desperately want to avoid another general lockdown. And this is just another layer of protection. As you indicated off the top, most provinces have it. Europe, um, many cities in the U.S. and Asia, this is how businesses and economies are reopening safely. There is a valid point of concern, though, by a number of the uh, the owners, and I'm sure you've heard from them. I certainly have, uh, saying, you know, that this is unfair because it's putting all the pressure on us, and the people that are going to get ticked off about this are going to vent to the staff, which is unfortunate. I mean, that's that's right where the policy is playing. I mean, you know, the, the premier or the MPPs aren't standing at the door of the restaurant saying, "Show me the proof." It's it's usually some host or hostess, and uh, and they bear the brunt of this, and it, it's it's unfortunate that people are acting like that. I know it's a small percentage, but uh, if if it's only one, and you the person that's taking the heat it's it's pretty rough yeah it, it's uh, very unfortunate that a small percentage are taking this out on certain small businesses many of the restaurants and small businesses we've been talking to are trying to be very patient working through it many are indicating that their patrons are fine and are uh, behaving appropriately and as i said while a lot of the burden is falling on them at the moment to administer this they're very hopeful that if this can help us uh, get further control in this wave of the pandemic that it'll increase capacity so they can get um, reopened more fully to help uh, get on top of all the debt they've accumulated over the 18 months or so of, of shutdowns and lockdowns that we've been facing. You know, Jan, as, as I hear some of these stories, uh, and I, I'm hearing the same sort of thing, by the way, that there is compliance for the overwhelming majority of patrons, uh, but it reminds me of the uh, the controversy such as it was when the smoking ball came into place in Ontario a number of years ago, and I guess it was the McGinty government that did that. And and we heard the same thing from a number of uh, restaurant and bar owners. That, you know what? You're going to drive us out of business. Nobody's going to like this. Nobody's going to come anymore. I had one particular guy, quick a story uh, in Hamilton that was very, very vocal about this. And I was on city council at the time that passed the bylaw locally. 
and uh, said, this is it, it's going to kill my business. And I said, I don't think so. Well, within six months, he actually had to buy the building beside him to expand the business uh, <laughs> after the bylaw went into place. And I wasn't going to run in and say, I told you so. But uh, a lot of these concerns and fears that I think a lot of these owners are saying right now are really unfounded uh, based on, uh, you know, the, the the concerns raised by one or two people. It, this is what we need. And by the way, the difference between the smoking bylaw and and, and this, both are public health issues, which is why the, the, the laws were enacted. But this is far more urgent. People have already died from this virus, and we want to stop this. And as you mentioned, the alternative is, is well, shut everything down again. And nobody wants to go there. Well, and I know some of the restaurant owners that I have been speaking to have, in fact, indicated that since this uh, came into effect, their business has actually increased. People have more people have been comfortable coming back to indoor dining, which is good as the weather starts to shift now into our beautiful winter months where outdoor dining isn't just a practical option. And I'm with you, Bill. I hope and our businesses hope it's just because this is new uh, that there's still some people reacting to it. But just as they've indicated with the masking and social distancing in the early days, there were uh, a fraction of folks not happy with it. They're just hopeful as this becomes just mainstay in terms of how we need to operate. And the challenge we need to keep reminding those that are in agreement with the policy is our challenge is not with each other. It's this pandemic. And we've got to get on the other side of this Delta variant and hope that there's nothing more problematic in, in the form of new variants. So whatever we can do to keep our businesses safe, to keep them operating is what we need to do. And as I said, we were huge proponents of putting this layer of protection in place with this vaccination mandate. Well, one of the problems here is is the, is the misinformation, I guess, which just adds to the consternation that a lot of people have because they they try to embrace these things. And you know, we've, we've a couple of people have emailed me and said, "Well, this this whole thing is illegal." Well, no, it's not. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, public health it does trump whatever individual rights you may or may not have, and and you don't have a right, by the way, to walk into a restaurant. That's a privilege. But but, but you have, at the Board of Trade have actually been proactive, as you mentioned, Jan, right from the beginning, and you've got a, a developed a, a policy, kind of a guide to try to help some of these sure. small businesses to clear up a lot of these misconceptions and understand exactly what this is all about. Yes, we created a vaccination mandate guide. It helps businesses of all shapes and sizes understand what the rules are, understand what businesses in their sectors are doing to comply with them, also to understand what the legalities are. I think the challenge right now If we look across the country, it's a mishmash of policies across the country. Some provinces are mandating it for workers. Others, like in Ontario, it's just for patrons. Businesses are saying, uh, many of the businesses, small businesses, they're saying, we just want to put a vaccine mandate in place for our workers as well, just to keep everyone safe. So this guide gives them all the information they need to have about that. Earlier in the pandemic, there were concerns about legalities. On the one hand, businesses need to keep their workers safe in the workplace. On the other hand, they didn't want to be charged with discrimination if they're requiring certain proof of immunization. But what the guide that we put together does also signals that businesses should look at what their local public health officers are indicated Here in Toronto, Dr. Davila has strongly recommended a workplace uh, vaccination mandate. So that gives businesses plenty of cover, so to speak, if they want to move in that direction and and to be able to avoid legal challenges. So it's everything uh, everything that businesses need to know, um, all the tools, how the process is going to work once the QR code system comes into effect. And it's a soft copy version, so we're going to continue to update it as things evolve. It's available on our website. If I could give that a shout-out, it's bot.com, bot.com, for bordertrade.com. And as soon as you get onto our website, it's the first thing you see on the banner.
And, and it, it clarifies an awful lot of things, you know, I, and this is what I think is, is needed at this stage. You, you talk about uh, a, a, broad, a much broader picture. I know that you also reference how, how, how some of the other businesses in this area are handling this thing. I mean, because I, I know that it, a lot of owners I've talked about in, with, rather, in the last couple of days are kind of feeling like they're an island under themselves, like what's going on someplace else? So well, I've got time. I'm concerned about my own little situation here. But you, you get feedback from all over the, the community, and you can get say, look, it, it's, it's, it's working, okay? You're going to get the exception of the odd time, but more often than not, it's working. And I think that's the case in most establishments, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, it is working. And we've, um, since October, we've had uh, focus groups of employers, building owners, uh, public health officials working in the downtown core, look, working out at Pearson Logistics Zone, where we've got different kinds of business activities. In the, in the downtown core, you've got a lot of professional services and small businesses that uh, use those workers as their daytime customers. Out at Pearson Logistics Zone, you've got Amazon, Canada Post, UPS, the e-commerce fulfillment centers, and they've got a very different working environment where they've had to have staff physically on site throughout the pandemic to continue to function. So we're talking to businesses in all sectors, all sizes, to understand how they're applying things, what's working, and to share best practices. Because the more we can help each other, the better the chance is for us to get through the fourth wave. I mean, I've expressed some concern on the program over the last couple of days since the policy was announced that I, I didn't like the two-stage thing that the province is doing here. I think it's really confusing people about what's going on. Uh, I would prefer that they wait until they had their act together and says, here, the way it's going to roll out. Uh, but, I mean, that ship has sailed. I mean, we have to deal with what we're dealing with here. And I think this is the approach that the Board of Trade is taking, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, it's, um, you know, quite frankly, we applaud the province for taking the step. We've been talking to them for many, many weeks, encouraging this. Um, it, it's an important first step, but it's not the perfect step. The QR code will be a next best step. The best step is going to be something that's a national platform that's interoperable because your small business, are, our customers aren't just coming from our city or our province. You've got them from out of province with international business travel permitted for vaccinated travelers. We've got international travelers coming in. How can a small business know what's proof of immunization from the state of Utah or the UK? I mean, it's it's putting a lot of pressure on them. So we need something that's digital, consistent across the country, and interoperable with local and out-of-province and out-of-country uh, visitors to our establishments. Don't you find that, historically anyway, that that eases the pressure on, on individual store owners or, or restaurant owners if there's a national policy and say, look, we're all in this. It's not just yep. the city of Toronto or it's not just the province. This is the way it's going to be. And and it, you're right. I think people say even if they're grudgingly you know, going alongside, they'll go on side because they figure, okay, this it's the same for everybody right now. And I think a lot of people are kind of clinging to that idea that, no, this is different. You're, you're trying to segregate people. And it's not the case at all. Uh, but you're Right, I, I know there's always going to be a debate, and I don't want to drag into the political weeds here, Jan. Uh, you know, between federal jurisdiction and provincial jurisdiction when it comes to healthcare issues. But I think the feds have to take a more proactive role here in trying to develop a national policy or a uniformity to it, anyway. Well, we've been talking to all levels of government, and let me tell you, the best support we're getting is from the mayors, and they're all over wanting to have a consistent, uh, consistent approach to things. I think. You know, if I can get negative for a second, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. You've got the EU that introduced this vaccination passport July 1st. They've been working on it since the fall of last year. And we just, every step of the way, be it at a provincial level or at a federal level, slow to adopt digital tools that are proving to be really good mitigation practices in other markets. So we continue to advocate um, as loud and as actively and as respectfully as we can 
But the reality is businesses need us to get on with this. Our workers want to feel safe as they're returning to office. Um, if we speak for a minute about the downtown core, yeah. it's the largest employment zone in Canada, 550,000 daytime workers in the towers before covid 2,500 small businesses relied on those work daily workers as their customer base. And um, New York Times uh, lovingly refers to us as the lockdown capital of North America because we've been locked down more than anyone else because we haven't put these tools in place. So we're continuing to push as hard as we can. And uh, it's helpful that we've got so many businesses at the table who are amplifying our message as well. But when I was doing the commute to downtown Toronto for many years on the GO train, there was, there was nothing like getting off at, at, at Union Station and seeing this rush of people through the underground tunnels all to get, to get their office. I said, well, this is commerce. I mean, it's, 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 it's to see it. You have to experience it to say, this is, this is the way things should be. This is the vibrancy uh, of economic growth that's happening. And, and it's not happening right now. People are afraid to go out. Uh, and I, I think you've just uh, I, I underscored exactly what is happening. I know an awful lot of people that say, I'm not going to a restaurant until this is in place. And, and I think that was the sort of pressure that the Premier felt uh, to say, okay, I'm not crazy about this myself, but we have to enact this. And and I think you're going to see the same thing happen. I think you're going to see a lot more people saying, and now I feel comfortable. I, I, I went to the football game last week. I mean, it, I, and everybody had to be double vaxxed and you had to show proof of it. I felt a lot better about that. You know, you, and, and people even feel comfortable taking their masks off now because they feel, well, I know that person's double vaxxed. It's, it, nothing's 100%, but it eases up the, the concern and the mm-hmm. pressure. And I, I think this is going to be beneficial. And I'm sure this is what you've heard from your, your members about this, to, to have this policy in place to, to actually give that level of comfort because uh, you've heard, as we have, some of the challenges that these, these businesses are facing right now. First of all, they're, they're limited in the, the capacity, but they're also having trouble finding people who want to come back to work. And that part of that may well be that those people that maybe did work there before don't feel safe going back yet. Yeah, well, absolutely. And if I, again, use the example of the work we've been doing in the downtown core, a lot of those large employers, the banks, the telcos, have been surveying their employees. And they're signaling that they've been nervous about returning to the workforce if they're working alongside unvaccinated people. And it's not passing judgment. It's simply that until we can get our school-aged children, our younger children under 12 vaccinated, there's worry about transmission risk in the workplace and taking that back to their children. So the employers are, are trying to navigate, um, you know, through these concerns to be able to create uh, a working environment where folks do feel safe about coming back. It was helpful when the feds announced that federally regulated uh, businesses like the banks and telcos had to have mandatory vaccination policies and so that's given clarity to them but it's the others the small businesses those are not in fact federally regulated businesses lack of consistency really hurts uh, confidence on the part of workers and on part of the public so the more we can get the provinces better aligned with the feds and doing things consistently across the country the sooner we're going to have better tools in place well and the other thing here is this is the new reality. I mean, whether you like it or not, it's what we need to do in this certain situation. Uh, you know, you want to go to the Jays game this week, big series against the Yankees. We've got to show proof of vaccination or you're not going. That's all there is to it. And you can kick and scream at the gate if you want, but you're not going to get in. That's all there is to it. And 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 they may have security staff there. Restaurants can't afford to do that. But what we're looking for here, I guess, is, is not just compliance, but some, some compassion and understanding for the people that are in this place. Uh, and, and then as we heard, played in the clip just before you joined us, uh, don't take 
take it out on the staff. They didn't yeah. pass the law. It was the provincial government that did this, and I think it was the right thing to do. As a matter of fact, I know it was the right thing to do. Uh, but don't take it out on some 18- or 19-year-old hostess yeah. at the front door that says, I can't let you in, sorry. Uh, and, and by the way, I would also suggest, uh, uh, since this has been in place for some time and it's been all the news, don't tell me you didn't know about it. So if you go to an establishment and say, "I demand," no, I'm going in, you, you, you went there to be confrontational. You, you know what the policy is, and if you're not going to comply, then don't go in the first place and don't put the pressure on these people. Uh, as I say, the, you know, way, way back at the beginning of when we were having those discussions, Jan, the sooner we comply with these policies and, and, and knock the numbers down, the sooner we can forget about this and throw our masks away and, and and put you know 300 people into restaurants again but it's not going to happen until we all do this and the the people that are pushing back on this i think are, are actually part of the problem not part of the solution but i want to applaud your members uh and the members here in hamilton and london too the the, the board of trade and the chambers of commerce who are under, being proactive on this and you guys have been right there at the front of the parade right from the beginning to say this is the way it needs to be and, and that's the kind of voice i think we need here well, and Bill, if I can give a shout out, even uh, Hamilton, London, we've got a network um, in the Toronto Waterloo corridor. There's 34 municipalities. All the chambers work together. So the vaccine mandate guide that we've produced has been shared across them. So I know, you know, Keenan, the know. head yeah. of the chamber there, it, it's all being shared across. We're working together. Excellent. Jan, as always, thank you so much for this, and thank you for the great work that you're doing uh, with the Toronto Region Board of Trade and setting the, uh, the tone here for everybody else. Appreciate that, and I appreciate the time today. Thanks a lot. Terrific. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for spreading the message. Take care. You betcha. Take care. Jan DeSilva, who's the president and CEO of the Toronto Region Board of Trade. And as I say, go to their webpage and, uh, and the, the guide that they're talking about uh, is right there for you. And if you're a small business person and, and kind of scratching your head as to how to comply with this and what you can do and what some suggestions might be that you can use and, and implement to try to make this easier, check that out. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about reconciliation. Uh, there's a very important day, which is coming up on Thursday, and we'll get into that in just a couple of seconds. But also, uh, to the greater picture here, we want to also talk about uh, the role that the Catholic Church played in, in the tragic circumstance with residential schools. And uh, to that end, uh, Catholic bishops in Canada are apologizing to Indigenous peoples for their suffering in residential schools. Jerry Smith has details. Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops agreed to the wording of the one-page statement during a meeting on Thursday. It says, along with the church entities that were directly involved in running the schools, the bishops expressed profound remorse and apologized unequivocally. They promised to provide documents that may help memorialize students in unmarked graves. They also promised to work to get the Pope to visit Canada and raise money to help fund initiatives recommended by local Indigenous partners. This comes as Pope Francis prepares to meet with Indigenous leaders of the Vatican later this fall. Jerry Smith, the Canadian Press. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Ken Coates. Uh, Dr. Coates is a Canada Research Chair with the Johnson Sugama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan, also a Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today. You're more than welcome. Uh, reading over the letter here, the the tone of the letter, Doctor, seems contrite. Uh, is is it a, a, a first step in in uh, what is going to be, I would assume, a long process here? It'll certainly be a long process. It's a it's a first step, and it's a very gentle step. It's not a dramatic. It's not exciting, um, and it's much overdue. So the response you're going to hear from First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people across the country has been, why did it take so long? 
Well, that, that, that was the first thing I asked when I saw the story, and the, the fact that they'd written the letter is uh, this is this has been simmering for quite some time, especially with the discovery, of course, of the unmarked graves. Uh, you would have thought that the bishops, uh, the Canada Council of Bishops, would have been more proactive on this and react responsibly. Uh, is, is, I know their response is probably going to be better late than never, but uh, better it, late tells me that, that this is, uh, is this a cover your butt situation here, or is this really a, an act of contrition for what that what was going on then? Well, I, I have confidence that it's an act of contrition. The Catholic Church takes a long time to make decisions, and it takes even longer to change direction. Uh, they're very nervous about apologizing, very nervous about saying that they're, they made big, big mistakes in the past. We've seen this on debates about um, child, child abuse, for example, that took many, many decades for them to sort of really come right on that issue, and they're not even there yet. So, so but put it in the context of the Catholic Church, this is not surprising but it's a very important step. Let's, I want to talk about the hierarchy for just a second. I mean, we're going to talk about the Pope and, and as the head of the Catholic Church and the, the responsibility that they have in this. But the fact that this came from Canada's Catholic bishops, uh, how important is that? Because my understanding, uh, I don't claim to be an expert on, on, on the hierarchy of the Catholic Church or the, the, the political structure of it, but these... I get this, the impression that, that what Rome does is lets each country have their own control over their own churches to a certain extent. And with that in mind, that the Canada Council of Bishops here is actually a, a pretty strong body representing the Catholic Church in Canada. It's not the ultimate authority, of course. The Pope is the ultimate authority, but, but they do uh, carry a lot of sway here. It actually is very important for the reasons you just described. Um, individual bishops have made very strong statements about residential schools a long time ago in uh, British Columbia. Bishop Remy Deroux was famous for many, many years for being outspoken on indigenous rights and supporting indigenous uh, aspirations in a whole bunch of different areas. But, but that was one voice. And what you have now is you have multiple voices, the bishops coming together, and I em emphasize the fact that this is you know, an unanimous decision. It will not make the indigenous peoples happy overnight. They're, they're sort of into the show-me kind of uh, environment where don't just say you, you're sorry, what are you going to do about it? But at least it's a step in the right direction. Well, and I think that's the reaction I've heard so far, and, and I, I think it's not very understandable. Uh, the consensus seems to be these are words at this stage. We want to see some action on this. Oh, exactly, and, and one of the things that First Nations have found really upsetting is there were commitments made by the Catholic Church for financial compensation, that they'd participate in the overall compensation of uh, victims of the residential school sort of process, and they've avoided most of those uh, financial contributions. It, it wasn't made spontaneously, it wasn't made quickly. Some of the other churches were much faster, much more com comprehensive in their approach, and First Nations paid a lot of attention to that. And so Why? What's, what? Why wouldn't you apologize? Why won't you take compensation steps? Why won't you sort of help us recover? So, so there's, there's, a, there's some bad feeling there. It's going to take a long time to overcome. Well, and the numbers don't lie here, and I, I know that the, there's one part of the letter here that addresses that. They said they have pledged to fundraise across the country to support initiatives that will lead the church and indigenous communities into a new era of reconciliation. That's the quote from the letter. But that was one of the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee uh, years ago, wasn't it, Doctor? Uh, and they didn't really act on that. I mean, there was a, actually a sum of money that was actually stated in that, and they, they raised a small, small percentage of that and saying, well, we can't afford to do the rest right now. Uh, and at the same time, it's as I think a, a report in the Globe and Mail suggested, uh, they built a number of different ornate churches. They've got the money. They just didn't seem to want to direct it to this. Uh, is, is this an admission that maybe we could have and should have done more? 
I think they do recognize that. I, I think they probably guessed as or assumed that the issue would dissipate over time, that the anger would sort of you know be resolved by the financial compensation for the government of Canada, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And in fact, what happens is it's built. It hasn't stalled. It hasn't disappeared. And the church really has to come to terms with it. Um, remember, too, that the church still has very active relationships with indigenous communities. It's not as though they've disappeared from the lives of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. They're, they're, in many parts of the country, the most dominant church in the lives of indigenous folks. And, and so that they're, they're not just talking about this in abstract forms or uh, historical sort of circumstances. They're talking about their own congregations. Their, their own petitioners, you know, and so this is something they have to deal with on a, on a daily and weekly basis with their own congregations. What do they need to do going forward? If we're going back to that statement that, you know, these are words, let's have actions on here. Uh, I don't I don't see an action plan here. I know that they talk about the visit or potential visit by the Pope to Canada at some point in the future. Another thing, by the way, that was recommended in that report from some years ago, uh, it kind of seems as if they're kind of catching up and getting some of the talking points from that commission. Uh, I'm glad they read it, uh, but the reality here is that we're looking for here is actions. What 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 needs to happen now to say, hey, we're behind this. Let's 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 show our actions are behind these words here. Number one is I think people are paying a lot of attention to the, the Pope, and what what will the Pope say and what will the Pope do? And and quite frankly, they're not very optimistic. You know, if if this was real contrition, you would actually see the Pope coming to Canada uh, to make these overtures. You wouldn't be asking Indigenous people to go to the Vatican. Uh, and I think there's real concern that that the the Roman Catholic Church as a whole just doesn't still get it. So I think there has to be a presence in Canada of the, the of the Pope to sort of bring this to some sort of a conclusion at least, or at least to set a really true new path. I think the financial compensation issue has not gone away. Uh, there's enormous needs in the indigenous community, so, so pay your bills. Uh, that part is really critical, but the church isn't in great financial shape, even though they have fancy buildings. Uh, they don't have a lot of good cash flow these days. And I think I think the other part is that the church has not yet recognized the importance of reconciliation as a a spiritual and cultural journey. They're dealing with it as a legal issue, and there's wonderful opportunities to learn from indigenous folks and learn with them and to, and to celebrate together and to continue their Christian journey in important and collaborative ways. That part is still just not on the table, and that's where we really need some some change. But to your point, uh, one of the reasons why they may be rather you know, nervous about going forward on this and a certain amount of trepidation on this is that legal aspect. I mean, because the, the, the unstated case that a lot of people were assuming was, well, there's never going to be an admission here because that's an admission of liability, and that's going to probably uh, you know, spark a number of different lawsuits, and that may still happen, and, and probably should happen in many instances. Uh, and they're trying to avoid that, that, that responsibility, that culpability went, went on here. Uh, are they over that right now, or is this still a rather regarded approach that you think that they're taking? I think they're uncertain about the legal consequences, and that has governed, to be honest, both the actions of the, the Roman Catholic Church, but also also the government of Canada. So we've been really reluctant to use you know, the, the full apology sort of processes in, in, in this area, but also just to get on with the business of moving forward. Um, I'm not sure that the Church or even the First Nations, Inuit, Métis people fully understand what the next step should be. Uh, you know, what they need is consultation, discussion, and conversation. And, and they need to be focused on, on solving the problems of individuals who are profoundly hurt by their own church. 
These are, we're talking here about devoted Catholics who sent their children to a Catholic institution and, brought, and found the children coming back damaged, uh, or, or even worse, dead. And, and so the, the hurt is immense. And I think that's the part we haven't really gotten to. These general statements about, oh, we're sorry, doesn't really deal with the, the depth of the problem. Uh, it says the uh, the church is committed to providing records to help memorialize those buried in unmarked graves, which is one of the requests as well. And again, uh, actually doing that, I think, would go a long way. Doctor, while well, I've got you, I, I, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, a very important day coming up this Thursday, uh, September 30th. It will be the first national day for truth and reconciliation. It's, it's a national uh, day. The, the province of Ontario has decided not to, to make it a, a, a national day, a day. But uh, other provinces, I, I guess, are going to have different policies on this. What do we need to do here? to make this more than just a day where some offices are closed and, and actually uh, do what, what the day was intended to do? Well, that's a really great question. Isn't, isn't it astonishing that you're asking it? Um, we've had a lot of time to think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's premature, to be honest, but on a personal, speaking personally. You've got a holiday that basically will reward mostly non-Indigenous government officials um, for the horrible things that government policy and the churches did together over 150 years. How that, how that advances reconciliation is really, really not clear in my mind. So I think what we need is state situations where, where communities use this as an opportunity to come together. Um, I haven't heard of very many of these kinds of things, where actually there is deep reflection about the residential school and indigenous experience. I think this is going to be a holiday like other holidays. Oh, and that's the fear that I have as, as well. There's, I mean, with, we're drawing very close. We're two days away from it right now. And, and there may well be, I know that there's a list in the local paper here about a couple of the activities that are going on, uh, if you care to take part in. But uh, you're looking for leadership here, uh, I guess, from the community leaders, whether it's federal, provincial, or, or municipal, to actively be a part of this and, and to be proactive in, in policies such as this. Uh, you know, Remembrance Day as, as, as a comparator. I mean, you know, there's, there's usually at 11 o'clock that morning, there's a, a ceremony in most communities, honoring uh, those who serve their country, etc. I'm not seeing anything of that ilk uh, to honor what's going on here or to remember a moment of silence, something like that. Uh, even if it's somebody, you might just suggest it's symbolic, but I mean, there's nothing here. To me, you're right. It just means, oh, it means the federal offices are going to be closed on Thursday. Uh, let's move on with our lives. And that's a really sad outcome of this because it's supposed to be a, a major symbol there was, you would expect a holiday would be granted exactly the things you talked about, some sort of major event, a major act of reconciliation. And, and what's really sad is I think the First Nations will make the effort. I'm not convinced that the non-Aboriginal population is really engaged at all. And I think government has, at all levels, has just let this one flop in the wind. And it's such a sad thing. Well, and it seemed to me... Forgive my cynicism, but I mean, you know, having watched this for years and years, that the whole concept, I, I agree with that the day of a national day of truth and reconciliation uh, makes all kinds of sense. But the fact that it was, okay, let's do it this year, let's do it this September 30th, uh, seemed to me, doctor, to be more of a political move than, than a, a move at reconciliation. Well, Canada has become very good at symbols and sort of acts of, of sort of, you know, public apology, that sort of thing particularly at the federal government level. And so this was passed, you know, the First Nations asked for it, Métis and Inuit people asked for it. It was in the Truth and Reconciliation recommendations, so it's not as though they've, it came out of, out of thin air. But, but there's no substance to it. So this is just a, ephemeral. It's just a bunch of air and in in, 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 in noise. It isn't going to be a substantial piece unless 
individual First Nations, individual Métis Inuit communities, and most importantly, the non-Aboriginal population engage. And I just haven't seen enough sign that people are doing that. And that means it'll be a negative rather than a positive, and that's most unfortunate. Well, it, it really is, because I think this was an opportunity to actually go down that road of, of reconciliation. And, and one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past is, is step one of that is education. Uh, and there's not a whole lot of that going on right now. There's a lot of talk, just as uh, some people are suggesting the Catholic bishops have done, but not a lot of action to follow up on this. And, and it's, it's not as if this is a new issue. So, I mean, you know, to suggest, well, we need to get our act together, I think is a pretty flimsy excuse. I, I think so. We've had the time to do it. Um, we wasted a bunch of time and money on, a, on an election that nobody wanted and nobody cared about. Um, and now we're having a holiday that seems to sort of pick up the spirit of the 2021 federal election. And, and First Nations will notice this, and Métis and Inuit people will notice this. They'll, they'll say, here's a holiday that we declared to sort of deal with this and sort of have an act of, of public contrition and reconciliation. And if nobody shows up, if you have events and 50 people come instead of 5,000, they're going to understand what this is all about. Exactly. Uh, Doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program today. I, I, I hope things are going to turn out differently on Thursday, but uh, I have my doubts at this stage. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. You're more than welcome. Take care. You too. Dr. Ken Coates, uh, of course, member of the McDonald laurier Institute and uh, Canada Research Chair at uh, the University of Saskatchewan. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.